Men, you and I are destined for great things. So far in Philippians, we've seen some incredible verses which detail for us the Christian life, the Christian hope, the Christian future. Uh, really, a summary verse of the entire book is back in Philippians 1, verse 6. It says, He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Today we're in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And here we find something biblically mysterious, uh, something that seems contradictory at first, but is in fact a revelation to us of how God works in our lives. So here we go, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So there are a couple of serious questions that come to mind when we first read this passage. First, is this text implying that a Christian can lose their salvation? Uh, it's a pretty serious question. And then second, is there a contradiction since Paul says in verse 12 that we work, but then in verse 13 that God does the work? Uh, the thing to keep in mind is that God desires to reveal himself to us and to answer the questions that we have when we read his word. And so as we seek him, we'll discover not only understanding about what this text means, but we'll also find a way of life that leads to fullness and completion in his will. And so first, does this text imply on any level that a Christian can lose their salvation? There are many Christians who do believe that our salvation uh, eternally can be forfeited through sin or through lack of faith. Um, Belief in that doctrine does not disqualify a person from being saved or from being a Christian. We, however, do not hold to that teaching. We believe from the biblical text that a person is secure in, this, in their salvation and that nothing can snatch us out of the hands of Jesus who holds us as his people and grants us eternal life. Uh, remember who Paul is addressing here. He's been talking about unity in the church, relationship in the church, co-service in the church. He's extended to his readers grace and peace from God. He's called them saints. He's expressed his confidence that God is going to complete them until the day of Christ Jesus. I mean, that's what we've read so far in Philippians. And so it's clear that Paul wasn't worried that this group of readers was going to lose their salvation imminently. If he was, he wouldn't have been so confident in the opening chapter. There would have been, I think, a lot clearer warnings about that. H.A. Uh, Ironside, the Bible commentator, recounts the story of how a small child heard this verse used to teach that a person could, in fact, lose their salvation. And the child then said to her mother, how can you work it out if you haven't got it in? And um, that's a good, that's just a good way to, you know, think about this text. Instead, this particular verse is speaking about obedience and our effort in the Lord. It's about manifesting our salvation in our lives. The phrase work out can be translated as manifest or accomplish. We are to manifest the power of God in our lives. That's what we're called to do. All those things that God provides to us, all those characteristics that we read about in the Sermon on the Mount and Romans 6, 7, and 8, 1 Timothy and Titus and all over God's word, all those things that we read about were to manifest those things in our lives. Because salvation is not just a destination, salvation is also an implementation. It's putting into reality, putting into action the life of Jesus, the gifts of the Spirit, the will of the Father, as we are transformed by his power. And so Paul calls upon us to work out our salvation, to manifest it in our lives, to move forward in God's will and not be stationary. 
When problems arise in the church, we're to manifest unity. That's what he's been talking about in this section. That unity is going to save us from broken relationships with one another and a loss of our witness in the community. And so this verse and this text is not about losing our eternal salvation, our eternal security at all. But it's about missing out on the life that Jesus offers. You know, it's a, and that is something that we are in danger of while we're here on the earth. Our eternal salvation is secure, but our uh, implementation of God's power and that, and that uh, living a saved life, that is something that we're in danger of stagnating in, something we're in danger of ignoring or even resisting when we're here on the earth. Second question is this. Does this text contain a contradiction? Are we the ones that are, doing, are supposed to do the work or is God the one that does the work in us? Let's read the text again. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as much, uh, not as in my presence only, excuse me, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So you boil this down and it's like Paul saying, you do the work, but by the way, God does the work. And, uh, you know, Paul can be kind of... Um, grammatically confusing to me sometimes. But here we remember that God's ways are above our ways. His activity uh, is not limited to our finite understanding or the way that we do things traditionally. This situation is consistent with what we see throughout the scriptures. He's the potter, we're the clay. It's a pretty simple analogy. However, in difference to what we have on earth when a potter is forming clay... We have control over our usefulness and over our pliability in his masterful hands. That's what the Bible says. That doesn't happen in the physical world that we occupy. Clay is clay. It's inanimate. But uh, when God uses that analogy, he says, I'm the master potter. You're the clay. By the way, you are able to have control over your usefulness and pliability in my hands. We are called upon in the scriptures to bear fruit as Christians. Yet, also in the Bible, God says that he's the one that bears the fruit in us. He is sovereign, yet we have free will. These are things that the Bible teaches. God has transformed us, but we have the ability to resist his presence and his will in our lives. We have the ability to yoke up with him or to remain distant from his presence and from his work. Uh, it's a very interesting relationship that we see set up by the Lord. And this is what Paul is talking about. And really, it's not that hard to understand if we... And, you know, take a minute to think about it. This is a, a really poor analogy, but I, it's the best I could think of for uh, this morning. Some of you guys lift weights for exercise. Uh, when you do, all sorts of crazy things happen within your muscles that cause them to grow and to strengthen and to, you know, develop, right? So when you are exercising with weights, is it you who is strengthening yourself or is it your muscles that are strengthening themselves? You know, is it the process within your muscles that are doing it or is it you that is you know, building strength. Well, there has to be a cooperation between that which is within the processes within your muscles and a willingness to actually do the exercise. If we remove one of those things, then um, the strengthening is not going to occur. And so it's an imperfect analogy, like I said, but our relationship with God is about us participating in the things that he wants to accomplish in us. We cannot purify ourselves without the Lord, but we can allow God to purify us. We cannot bear fruit of ourselves without the Lord, but we can allow him to bear fruit in us. And perhaps more significantly, we can hinder God from that which he desires to do in our lives as we fail to obey him and fail to love him and fail to follow him. 
The Lord intends to will and to do in our hearts and in our lives for his good pleasure. That's what this text says. He intends not only to transform us, but then to actually use us in significant ways here on the earth. But if we want what he wants, then we cannot remain stationary as individuals. We can't remain carnal as individuals. We can't remain unengaged in this life that we're living before God. Paul instructs us here in our text, and he says a couple of things that we're to do in order to stay moving forward with God and in order to allow him to work in our lives, to accomplish that work that he intends to do. First, we are to obey. That's the key. That's how we're you know, able to allow God into our lives to will and to do those things for his good pleasure by obeying what he said and what he said and what he says, excuse me. Now, thankfully, we are given a thousand page head start. You know, you become a Christian and you get saved and you get a thousand page head start. God's word. Well, how thankful and wonderful, you know, it is that the Lord provides his word and, and preserves it for his people so that we're not left with you know, a bunch of unanswered questions. We're given a revelation of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be godly, what it means to be mature, what it means to bear fruit, how we're to live in this world in all these different situations. That's already waiting for us the moment that we get saved. Beyond that, the Spirit of God is faithful to speak and to direct us continually as he dwells within us. God didn't stop communicating with man when the Bible was finished. You know, God is not silent, you know, and only relying on text to speak to his people. He continues to actively speak through his word and direct by his spirit each of us personally and daily. Obedience, first of all, simply means to listen, to hear. That's what that word means. The same word is used in the book of Acts when Peter is miraculously released from prison. He then goes to where the disciples are all gathered and he knocks on the door of the house. And it's in uh, Acts 12, verse 13, it says, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And that's that word right there, obey. It's the same word that we see in our text. She came to answer. God is depicted as knocking on the doors of our hearts in the Bible. He's desiring to come in and dwell with us. And so obedience means hearing God and then answering Him. Have we communicated with the Lord at all this week as men? Have we... Uh, has he spoken anything to us? If not, if we look back on you know Monday through right now and we think, well, God hasn't said anything to me. Uh, it's not because God is silent. We know God isn't silent. His, you know, he dwells within us actively and presently, promises to speak, promises to direct. He's given us his word, which is living and applicable to every point of life. And so we know God is not silent. And so if God has not spoken anything to us, then it's because we need to listen. We need to obey him by hearing his voice. But obedience also means submitting, choosing a course of action that places the Lord in charge of our lives. It's the same word uh, used here that was used when Christ rebuked the storm and the wind and waves obeyed his voice. It means not being like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he said, you know what, I'm going to follow you to this point. But beyond that, I'm not willing to sacrifice, I'm not willing to pursue, I'm not willing to go beyond this point. This is how far you can direct me. Instead, we're to surrender and live in unconditional surrender, in fact, to God, being submitted to every decision and direction that God places on our lives. That's obedience. Not conditional, but unconditional. Paul says, 
I know you guys were locked in when, when I was there with you. I know you guys were doing what you needed to do. And that was great. But don't let up. Don't cool down in your relationship with the Lord. The same encouragement applies to us today. When we were new believers, we had a, a very beautiful abandon to the Lord. You know, freedom from sin, turning from God and, and just going for, or turning from sin, excuse me, and just moving forward with the Lord. Yeah, we find so often that as believers, our first love changes into something less passionate, something less sacrificial, something less personal, something less than what we really want with the Lord. And so Paul is saying, look, you don't cool down. Don't move away from where you were, you know, a while back. We need to listen and submit to God and take on the life and the calling and the yoke that he has for us. But then the apostle says to manifest our salvation in fear and trembling. We talked a little bit about godly fear last week. It's not being afraid of God's anger, you know, like Greeks were afraid of Zeus, but it's being afraid of displeasing him, having to dread that my actions are going to displease the one who loves me and saved me. Also, as we've seen in this epistle, how important our witness is as individuals, we should also have a fear of stumbling those who are around us, those people who Jesus loves so dearly. Mark 9.42, Jesus said, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Uh, that is serious, and we should take it seriously. We need to have a healthy fear of damaging someone's spirituality or eternity even if we manifest sin in our lives rather than salvation. If we manifest carnality rather than spirituality. A church also needs to have a healthy fear for her witness and for her testimony in a community. Revelation 2.5 Jesus again, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. When we leave our first love, we're in danger of this discipline. As individuals and as congregations, we must be manifesting God's love and his power so that we stay in the proper relationship with our bridegroom. But then there's also that word trembling. Uh, I thought about what causes a person to tremble sometimes. There's two quick ideas here as we close. First, hunger can cause a person to tremble. Therefore, we should have a hunger for the things of God, for his word. If we don't, that means that we're trying to depend on some other source for our satisfaction. But only Christ can satisfy, only Christ can fill, only Christ can offer lasting supply. So if we look at our lives and we think, well, I'm not really interested in reading the word. I'm not really interested in you know, doing Christian things, not really interested in serving the Lord, then that means that we are filling our spiritual bellies with something else. And um, that's a dangerous place to be because only the Lord can fill and supply and satisfy in the long run. The second thing that can cause a person to tremble is weakness. Weakness can cause a person to tremble. We should remember our weakness and our dependence on the Spirit of God. The Bible says that not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. That we live and we move and we have our being. Those are serious statements that the Lord makes. There's nothing else. There's no other strength. There's no other ability. And so when we remember and embrace our weakness before the Lord, uh, one of the things we talked about in previous studies uh, in this Sermon on the Mount, our spiritual bankruptcy before the Lord, that's when he's going to fill us with his confounding power and do all that he desires to do in our lives. God desires to bring forth salvation in our lives. Not just the destination of heaven, but the implementation of his will and of his power. 
He desires to glorify himself in us. He desires to transform and complete us. But he leaves a lot of that up to our participation. Uh, And that's a very interesting thing when you stop and think about it, the graciousness of our God and his willingness to allow us to demonstrate our willingness. We want to be fruitful. We don't want to be barren. We want to be full. We don't want to be spiritually emaciated. So listen to God, submit to God, love God, and then keep loving God. That's how we receive the fullness and the completion and the mysterious wonder of Christ.